from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. Fair warning, everyone. I love Kara Swisher. I mean, how can you not? She's been one of the hardest-hitting journalists covering the tech industry since the tech industry started. Kara knew early on that the internet was going to irreversibly change the world. Now, that might sound like a given now, but it wasn't at the beginning of Kara's career three decades ago. And who can forget when I asked Allison, what is internet? Yeah, let's try to forget that. Kara's decision to make tech her beat and really stick to that role as chief watchdog and rabble-rouser in an industry that often seemed to view its leaders as gods has been a true public service. Kara has a new memoir. It's called Burn Book, A Tech Love Story, and it's out today. And by the way, the blurbs on the back of the book under praise for Kara Swisher, well, they are classic Kara, like, quote, not a single more vitriolic voice in the tech ecosystem, David Sachs, loquacious podcast guy. Or Mark Andreessen's quote, she would sit on instant messenger all day and harass the shit out of people. Sally Quinn said she has an incredible bullshit detector, which is always helpful in Washington. You're an asshole. That was Elon Musk's quote. So you get the drift. Along with being a fascinating look at how a great journalist gets made, it's a history of how the tech industry burrowed itself into every aspect of our lives. Carrie uses history as her guide, in fact. No surprise when you hear what she studied in college to examine how new technologies like AI could change our lives profoundly again. I'm really grateful to have Kara's insight and her irreverent, dogged, keen, and incisive point of view to keep the tech industry's feet to the fire and to have her as my guest today. 
She's also a great person and a really good friend. Here's my conversation with the one and only Kara Swisher. First of all, Kara, are you sick of talking about your book yet? Or are you, are no, you excited? No, not yet. This is the first day. The se- well, no, I did a bunch last week. But yes, this is the first big day. Well, I'm very excited because everyone, I mean, I love Kara. And she's got a new book out called Burn Book, a tech love story. And honestly, reading it, I felt like I was just having a really long, fun, extended dinner with you, uh-huh. hearing about really tech for the last 30 plus years. Yeah, and you've, yeah. you've had a front row seat. I love the book. It's so fun and funny, but also incredibly substantive, just like you, you, Kara. Thank you. Well, you know, 30 years, Katie. Don't try to age me. I know you try to age me all the time, but <laughs> 30, exactly. 30 Actually. years. Uh, yeah. And and I found the book to be funny, smart, cheeky, and insightful. So Thank you. first, a quick question. Was it fun writing this, Kara? Well, you know, I'm two and a half years late, actually. So no, I didn't really want to do that. And one of the things that was hard is getting to do it, as you know, from writing your memoir, right? Right. Getting yourself psyched. But you're like a harder worker than I am. Like I was sort of That like, is not, that is well, so I'm not true. I'm a hard true. worker on the things I like. How's that? And I didn't want to write a book at all. You know, I had avoided books for a long time. I had been offered, you know, whenever there was a Twitter book or what happened to Katie Kirk at Yahoo Book. Or, well, you did write, <laughs> we'll discuss that later, but you did yeah. write a book really early on in your career about AOL, I did. by the way. I did. Then it was to, to, that was when I was in, you know, really young and I was And really, you needed was, to make some cabbage. Cabbage. And not just cabbage, but reputation, right? And I really did think this internet thing was going to be a big deal. And nobody, at that, that time, when that book came out in 1997, very few people were figuring this out. And so that was a different thing because I was there in Washington sitting by myself and going, this is, this is a big revolution and people need to pay attention. So I had been the, the editor on that was John Carp, who now runs Simon and Schuster. He was a young guy too. We were both at the beginning of our careers. And he's the one that got me to write it, and which was interesting, the first book. And I he said, This is these people are going to change the world, Carrie. You need to write a book about them. And I was like, okay. And then in that book, I have Yahoo people, Amazon people. There's all Jeff is in that. And so he kept bugging me over the years, like, do you want to do this? I was like, no, I don't want to do a Google book or a Twitter book or whatever. But then he came to me and said, would you write a fictional book? And I said, oh, what do you mean? Like, make it up? And he goes, yeah, I'll get you a fiction writer, this and that. And I said, oh, I I could kill someone then, right? Like, you know, (laughs) like I could make it a murder mystery and, you know, that murder doesn't get solved, essentially. And then I was like, I can't do that. It's not really me. And then he, he, Walt Mossberg was supposed to write a memoir of his time in tech. And I wanted him to do that. And he just decided not to, he abandoned it for his own reasons. And I said, someone's got to say what happened here, right? Someone who knew, who has notes, who has pictures, who, who you know, and, and especially has bodies, has, knows, has where, the bodies, knows where the bodies are buried. Yeah. But not just that, it was more like, we are at a cusp of another huge change. And I thought a, a artificial general intelligence, AGI, um, was a line, another line. And like, just like, uh, mobile was or the internet itself was and i thought i could end it there like we're on the cusp let me tell you what happened the first time because we're in for like a world of trouble if we don't and that's why i did it i think one of the great things about the book is how prescient you were Karen, and how mm-hmm. you read the tea leaves unlike really anyone else that sounds mm-hmm. like jonathan carp did as well by the he way but yeah he did 
But but before we talk about sort of the the business writ large, I want to talk a little bit about you personally because mm-hmm. I found some of the stuff about your family so moving. You lost mm-hmm. your dad to a complications from a brain aneurysm when you were you were just five years old. Remembering that morning, I think it was a sunny Saturday. I think you described mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah. And uh, your your brother knocking on his door and how traumatizing that was and. And also about your stepfather, and um, I'm I'm curious in retrospect, and you write a little bit about this in the book, and I want people to buy the book, so we don't want to tell everything that's in the book. But but how how were you shaped by the father? You really didn't know very well. I think no, you knew him I better did. posthumously. Yeah, because here's the deal: I have you know I have a lot of kids. You have a lot of kids. When my son, who's 21 now, turned five. I was over five years old when my father got sick, when he, it was a couple months older. My son knew me so well at five. My daughter, who's four, and I chit-chat all the time. My two-year-old and I chit-chat. I realized the devastation then. Like, oh, my God, I did know him really well, right? And so I just don't remember it. That's very different than I didn't. And so I had thought that because I was so young and didn't remember, it didn't have an impact. But the minute I had kids, it was, and I actually had a stroke very close to when my older kids were that age, right? And I thought- So scary. It was. But I think it really was a formative experience. And that was another thing I didn't want to write about. I mean, you wrote your memoir and it was a lot about work and stuff like that, but I had a very hard time. I don't, in my case, I don't think I was as interesting as the people I was writing about. And so I was very reticent to write about my personal life, very. I, don't, I never had done it. And he pressed me to do that, to add it in. And, and then I realized, you know, this is a journey story. This is, I'm Nick in The Great Gatsby. That's who I am. And so I love that you used that quote, too, by the I way, did. at the beginning of the book. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a tell for me. But I'm that character. And you need to know a little bit about Nick and where he came from so you understand my journey, essentially. Well, I also think your understanding of this brave new world, you have to understand sort of the person who's telling the story. And obviously that's you. And your dad sounded like such a a gem of a person, uh, a doctor, Mm -hmm. right? In the Navy. Yes. And just sounds like an incredible man. And then Mm -hmm. your mom goes and marries a stepfather. And I think you used alliteration. Casually cruel. Didn't you use a cascade of casual cruelties? I cascade believe. of casual cruelties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah was. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me go back to my original question. How did both men, in retrospect, shape you and the person you became? Well, you know, my dad was, you know, every look, when people die young, uh, people get to be make them into heroes, right? That's true. You know, no matter how you do, the memories sort of get much more burnished. And you, you're, you had a tragic, your husband died. Um, but we know who they were. But my dad, I have to say, every t- I wrote a story about, re- I moved his body from where it was buried in New York a long time. I wrote a story in the Washington Post about it to West Virginia after my grandmother, who was devastated by his death, um, asked me to, she was dying of leukemia and she asked me to move him. And I did this. I wrote a story about it. And after I wrote it, it went in, the, I was young, young. I was in my mid 20s, I guess, when I wrote it. And I got so many letters from people who knew him, which was really something. Like, it was really something. And including, like, I got a, a, a young uh, doctor uh, who he had... Um who he had um, trained. She, he tutored her. I didn't know this. I got an, an email from a Jewish doctor who said he's the only one who was said, cut the anti-Semitic bullshit, which was really, I was sort of like, what a good guy. This guy's gay couple. He's the only people he treated us like we were a real couple. This was way back in the, you know, in the sixties. And I was like, 
and, and, and friends of his, an ex-girlfriend of his, you know, all this stuff. And it was really fascinating to learn about him. That's a wonderful gift for your kids, by the way. It is, 100%. And one of the things that it did teach me is that you really don't, you have to understand impact of people on your life, even if they're not there. The, the absence of my father was as important as his presence, right? You know, in terms of losing him. And then my mom did marry someone who was not nice. And it, I was sort of, it wasn't Cinderella. We're not in a, you know, an episode, of, but it was it, to think about losing someone so precious and then having to deal with a very tough person afterwards. And your mom is part of it, right? And so, you know, she had a reason. She's a young woman with three kids. Like, I get it. I get it. But he was just, he, I'll tell you, he did teach me about strategy. He was brilliant. And so he taught you like, how to play risk, backgammon, right? And, and backgammon. backgammon. I'm really good. I won't play it anymore because I get really mean when I play it. It's really <laughs> funny. Uh, I learned how to be tough, you know, in that regard. And I, you had to be when you're left with almost raising yourself in a weird way in an expensive environment. It's not like I was like, I had to scrabble eat food. It was a very, I mean, I grew up in a very lovely environment, but doesn't make it any less lonely or sad, you know. It sounds like your dad gave you, though, maybe the ability or this mm-hmm. instinct you have to to stand up for what's right from those letters you got. Yes, I think so. Absolutely. And so my grandmother played, a, my mom's mom played a big role in my life, was very supportive and loving. And my I, I later got much closer to my father's mom, um, all kinds of reasons we didn't spend as much time with him. But You know, I had a lot of support from family. We have a big Italian family, so there was that. You didn't talk about your mom that much in the book. I didn't. That's the next book, Katie. Why not? It's complicated. A tough relationship. It's complicated, you know. I think, uh, how funny, you're pressing exactly what you shouldn't, but that's okay. That's Katie Couric. Um, (laughs) I, I have a complex relationship with her, continue to this day. And I think there's a lot of me that doesn't forgive her for him, I guess. Um... You know, I think there's probably that element to it. She's, you know, we've had a very up and down relationship, including me being gay. I mean, she's come around well, but at the initially she was terrible. And so that was another thing. I knew I was gay at four or five years old. Like I knew it. And how did you know it? Just did. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I just yeah. was like, uh-huh, that's what I am. I was kind of proud of it. It was weird, except for all the messages you were getting from media at the time, which, as you know, you know, predatory lesbians, all drunk, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. And uh, and gay people bad. You know, that was during my era, um, pre-AIDS. Right. And yeah. mine, too. Mine, too. And And one of the things I marvel at always is... I think sometimes people don't, not that we don't have miles to go before we sleep, but people don't recognize how different it is. Not perfect Mm -mm. for gay people in this country. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, you're a little younger than I am, Kara, uh, maybe a lot younger than I am. And I was thinking about how you wanted to go into the CIA. And back then, which would have been the the 80s, right, when you graduated, right? Mm -hmm. That, yeah. You know, people forget about don't ask, don't tell. They don't forget about the fact that Obama actually initially didn't support gay marriage. They yeah, don't remember the Clintons, how the Clintons were right don't exactly ask, don't tell, how. No, no, no. I know, I know. For yeah. the military, but then mm-hmm. Obama, it's just sort of shocking to to see yeah. that he had to evolve, and thank goodness he did during his presidency. But you couldn't be in the CIA or the military, which is what you right. wanted to do. I which would have you would have been so great. I would have been a kick-ass admiral. You would have. You would have. I would have been. Tell me why. What stopped you? 
um, I didn't want to lie. I didn't, I, it was in then before don't ask, don't tell, which is already offensive enough. Right. Like I, first of all, I ask and I tell like, so that's kind of hard. Um, which I, I can't even believe they passed that. I just, when you think about it today, you're like, are you kidding me? Talk about why that's so offensive for people who might not remember. Well, cause it's like, they don't get to ask and you don't say, cause if you say you have to leave. So you have to lie. Everybody's lying. And it's just, it creates, talk. you want to create, you know, community within the military. You want to create collegiality and, and the, the kind of things you need to have a strong military. And you're all lying to each other. It's like, I might as well be with my family, right? You know, that kind of thing. And the furtiveness is what is bad about it. And before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I think a lot of straight people thought, well, we're being nice. We're not going to ask now or hold it against them. But asking you to lie is just... Like, this is who I am, and I have to tell you I'm not or or pretend I'm not. It was just so ridiculous. And they thought that was nice compared to putting you in jail for it or throwing you out of the military with a dishonorable discharge was what happened. And so the whole – but it wasn't just in the military. It was everywhere. You had to be furtive. It was – I can't – you know, today is a full-on assault of gay people, and that's where they're headed, gay marriage. But they're doing it in plain sight now. They, they're, they're saying they don't like gay people. They don't like trans people. They don't like – LG, they're they're not even hiding their their kind of thing. Before it was, it was very furtive the way you were, you know. If you're gay, then you know people knew to keep quiet or or else kind of thing. And I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I just I'm not that person. So I then I did another job. After a quick break, Kara talks about her early career and dishes out some excellent professional advice. If you want to get smarter every morning with a breakdown of the news and fascinating takes on health and wellness and pop culture, sign up for our daily newsletter, Wake Up Call, by going to katiecouric.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. And we're back with Kara Swisher. 
So you decided to go into journalism. You went to Georgetown. You didn't love it. You wanted to go to Stanford, where your brother went. But you did love your history courses. You write, my focus was on propaganda and how groups like the Nazis use media and communications tools to twist facts, radicalize their populace, and demonize the targeted population. Obviously, Hitler and his henchmen had conducted a masterclass in evil, but what struck me was how easily people could be manipulated by fear and rage and how facts could be destroyed without repercussions. Mm -hmm. Did you ever imagine your major would come in so handy? I mean, that's so scary. You know, yes, because when I saw the Internet for the first time, I was like, that was one of my first thoughts besides cool, right? Whoa, this is really interesting, especially the World Wide Web, the hyperlinks. I was like, oh, look at that was the ability to manipulate it. You know, you saw it. It was right. You couldn't miss what you could do with it from a negative point. I'm one of those people, and I think that was one of the things I write about in the book, which is I I, I anticipate consequences. I'm good at that, mm-hmm. right? If this, then that. And that was what I wanted to do in the military intelligence is sort of be like, you know, homeland, but, you know, 100% less mentally uh, challenged. But I like that. Like, what's going to happen here if I know this input? And you know that in reporting, you do that. You sit there and you're like, when you're doing an interview, you're like, strategize it, right? Right. If I say this, they might say this, then I'll say this. You know, you do things like that. And so I really liked that. I was really attracted to that. And so it. I think reporting is like that, very much like that. And so it was really easy for me to move to understand what the Internet would be when I saw it, because I was like, oh, this is a really good propaganda tool. And that was when you were on a fellowship at Duke Mm -hmm. and you had this aha moment. I think you were in the library. Yeah. And this idea that you could just digitize the world, right? You could. Yeah, a book. In this case, it was a book, but it could have been anything. And I think I did see that. And I had already been attracted to like the the mobile phone that they had at the Post, you know, every right. you, news the, organization. The big clunky one that was like the size of a shoebox. Yeah. 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 There was one in a suitcase. And then there was the shoebox one. Then there was the Gordon Gecko one. And then it got smaller. But I was attracted to it. I was like, mobile communications. I like it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, why, why wouldn't we have these? Everybody have them as a reporter. Why be in the newsroom? And so I was super attracted to that. I was always obsessed. I know it sounds crazy with that teletype machine. You, did you ever visit the Post back in the day? You might have. No, but I mean, honey, I had teletype You had a teletype machine, right? Yeah, right. Uh, my job was changing the purple ribbon, and they even had little white gloves yeah, so you wouldn't yeah. stain your fingers. I mean, this is how old I am. Yes, me too. I, do, I delivered the page proofs down to the printers at the Washington Post when I was a news aide. And but that teletype machine, I hated it. I was like, why is it here? Why? It's going to be on the internet, not the internet, but it can go on the computer. I kept like, and even when I was at Columbia, they were teaching us to type on a typewriter. I'm like, why are we on a typewriter? There's a computer. Like, uh, there's no need to put anything on paper. And it wasn't because I like trees so much, although that's a benefit, added benefit. But it was so onerous like and then you use your red pen and i was like you don't need or to the use white out pen. and the you white know, out i, I, I remember you could I do a reversing and the by the way a little known fact michael nesmith one of the monkeys his invented, mother yeah. invented white out but then remember you had a backspace thing that you could That's white right. out on years later that was well. a big innovation that was an yeah or like we're going down old lady highway but you you saw technology the existing technology and you always mm-hmm. thought there's got to be a better way and then the internet comes up right yeah. and you're like yeah. holy shit this is the better yes. way but 
but I did see the negatives. I was like, wow, if Hitler had this, that would be pretty, that would be scary, right? If yeah. and bad people, I always was thinking, what would bad people do to this? Well, I think that benefited from your major, from what you mm-hmm. studied in college. 100%. You know? um, I think you applied that. I want to talk more about the internet in a moment, but I want to ask you about, I had so much fun reading about, as you describe yourself as a nuisance. I think probably mm-hmm. people have other choice words, Kara, uh, mm-hmm. to describe yes, you in your do. early, early days. And, and even today. now, and even now, but I loved how you worked your way, you know, how you got a job at the Washington Post by complaining about how an article was written. I love the fact that when you told John McLaughlin, the infamous Morton, Morton. blowhard, blowhard yeah. of the McLaughlin group, uh, that mm-hmm. he was going to lose power because he was getting old, but you said it in a much more eloquent, funny way. The way you kind of interacted with Don Graham, the publisher of The Post, who... Lovely guy. Yeah, lovely, but almost unnecessarily humble, I think, is, is, is sort of the way he comes <laughs> across. Uh, You're unnecessarily <laughs> humble. Be a little more arrogant, Tom. But, you know, to suggesting to marketers of major newspapers that the best way to get younger readers was to, quote, tape a joint between every single page. And it, it struck me, how did you have such confidence at such an early age? I mean, we talked about your dad standing up for what right. It was right, but you were such a ball or even in your 20s, Kara. And I mean, you called out bullshit and it was risky. You know, I know that Mm -hmm. you thought John McLaughlin was going to fire you when you Mm -hmm. gave him a piece of your mind. Yeah, which was so funny. Yeah. But he didn't. He laughed. But where does that come from? Because honestly, I want a slice of that. Part of me thinks it's lesbian. I think it's a lesbian thing. I think you're you're an honorary lesbian. Thank you. As you know, I told you to do that. But you have elements of it. And I'm not going to ask any personal questions, Katie. It's up to you what you want to do. Um, but I, I, it does have a little to do with it. Like, I didn't have to seek the approval of men. And there's an old joke, like, I don't know why they think lesbians hate men. They don't have to sleep with them, right? You know, like, why would I? And I had great brothers, and I had a lot of really good experiences with men. And so... Um, I just think I was, it was like that from a young age. I was like, this is stupid. You know, I don't understand it. And I would, and it, I wouldn't be able to not say it. And I don't know, maybe that's- You have a, no filter, I guess, right? I don't. Well, I have a filter. I have, I don't, I don't, I'm not unnecessarily cruel to, I don't have a filter of people above me. Like mm-hmm. I find myself constantly saying what's everybody's thinking, right? Very quickly. And I think, I don't know. And as I've gotten older, I'm like- I sort of moved to a cranky old lady very early in my life, right? Like, what? Huh? Huh? Or Larry David or that kind of thing. And I, I don't know what, why that was, but I was like that. And especially when there was like, it didn't make any sense to me. When they were like, and, and it's interesting you mentioned the word confidence, because I've had a lot of experience. Why are you so confident? Why aren't other people confident? Like, it's never that question. It's that as we have to all be not confident, especially women. Mm-hmm. I didn't ever understood that. I was like, I never said I was great at things I wasn't great at, but I also never said I wasn't great at things I was great at, right? Like I didn't mm-hmm. like I didn't go, I'm so good at basketball. But if I was good at writing, which I was, I'd say it. And a lot of people, especially men, I'm sorry to say this is what happens, but women do it too. They were like, Well, you shouldn't be so confident. I'm like, why? What precisely what why not? Well, because people will think you're you're too confident. I'm like, what is too, con- it's like saying people will think you're too stunning or people will think you're too smart. Like, why do that? And it was just irritating. I found it irritating on every level. And I especially, you know, I think women really get the brunt of that. And I didn't care, like, if they said I was bossy because I wasn't going to marry any of them. Like, okay, 
Well, good thing we're not getting married. And by the way, that's a, that's a great tool for a reporter. You right. know, you're challenging people. I know you don't like the term speaking truth to power, and I think it's sort of overused. Because um, mm-hmm. And it's insinuating, as you write, that all power is bad, and it isn't necessarily. Mm-hmm. But um, it comes in handy. And I think early on we were talking about your understanding of the Internet. Mm-hmm. You saw very clearly the Washington Post was in deep doo-doo, as they say, because of the classified ads. And Not just that. I covered retail before. Oh, and right. And Garfinkel's. 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 I used to shop at Garfinkel's. Sure you did. You probably had lunch in the rotunda. We were not the ladies who lunch crowd, you know. I had a very a pretty pretty modest upbringing, but mm-hmm. my mom once in a while would go to Garfinkel's and we would shop there and I loved that store and you write about it closing. Explain what it was. It was an elegant Yeah, it, I I think there were only two, weren't they? Weren't they just in DC because there yeah, was, it was one small. downtown it was a, DC. It was a local retailer. Same thing with Hex. Hex right. was a local yes, retailer. Yes, I used to I There's bought my a... first bra at Hex. Oh, how nice to know, Katie. <laughs> yeah, um so Hex, Garfinkel's, there was Giant Food Heckinger's. Um, right. There was a bunch of local retailers. And I covered the decline of all of them for the post. That was my beat because I covered the Haft family, who you also knew, Crown right. Book, Track exactly. Auto, Exactly, exactly. Bobby. And Bobby Haft. <laughs> and so I really did cover that. And I, I could see, that. And, and at the time, the culprit was Walmart. It came in, all the big box retailers, and Walmart was the most prominent. And we're putting those companies out of business. And they were highly technical, by the way, Walmart was. And I, I was paying a lot of attention to their use of technology. But then I thought, well, if, if display advertising goes, and then I saw the classifieds, I was like, oh, that's Craigslist is going to put this out of business. And then third, when the Internet really started seeing news, I was like, oh, news is free. A lot of it is. A lot of what's in the Washington Post is free. I was like, that's every single economic underpinning of this place. And therefore, their costs are too high immediately. Their revenue will drop out and then curtains. So why do you think so many people were and, you know, I had some foresight, not as much mm-hmm. as you did. I wish you actually did. you and I had talked more about the business side of mm-hmm. journalism. But why do you think there were so many people in the industry who didn't want to see the writing on the wall? Is it because they wanted to protect their business model at all costs, that they were older, they were just trying to reach retirement? What was it? Because I remember being at CBS, Kara, and saying Mm -hmm. to the digital people, hey, we really have to lean in. Quincy Smith. Yeah, Quincy. But also there was sort of a team at CBS Mm -hmm. News, like, we really have to lean into this. I want to do online interviews. Let's stay Mm -hmm. covering the conventions longer online and, and direct people to go online to watch our conversations. And so I feel like I was a bit ahead of the curve. But people looked at me like I had three heads. They did. They did. Because they couldn't understand, you know, everything was sort of handed to you. And it wasn't just in in media. It was also uh, record companies. Like, here's an album. What if you just want a song? Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like Coke saying a 64-ounce bottle is all you'll be getting. And if you don't want that, you don't have a glass, you're screwed, essentially. We're not going to sell it in cans. No other product was sold at the convenience of the seller as much as media, right? At whatever Whatever system they wanted, they would do. And they controlled it back then, right? That's right. Yeah. Because they felt like it. Because they, I used to get arguments o- over the five o'clock deadline. Why is it five? I, I, that's me ir- being, you know, irritating care. I was like, why shouldn't it be seven? Or why shouldn't it be all the time? Or why not when it just happens? Why not just, if it's a two, let's put it up at two, right? And they're like, we're not the AP. And I'm like, no, but 
people are going to get their news right then. And therefore, you're going to be late if you're not like the IP, you know, or why don't you do more? There's all of these behind the scenes things. And I just it seemed like an opportunity to me more than a negative. And they resisted. It was such vehemence. That was something to see, to watch the resistance. And frustrating and hard mm-hmm. to know. But I think it's risky to jump to a different business model and potentially cannibalize the product you're putting yep. out, you know? So I think there were some... Well, guess what happened? They got yeah. pushed. And they were too late to get technical, to get technical expertise. And guess who owns digital advertising now, which is really the only advertising except for some some display advertising. But for the most part, most of the money has shifted. One of the things I saw, and Scott Gallery reminded me this today, I remember when a TV usage was 7% of the attention and 30% of the advertising. And internet was 30% of the usage and 7% of the, and I thought, that doesn't make any sense. And of course, it's gone like this, right? Why should thing people are on not get the bulk of the advertising, right? And I think the, I I don't know what numbers they were looking at, but anybody could have seen it coming. It's not like I was some genius in any way. I remember Jeff Zucker used to talk about analog dollars and digital dimes, and it just didn't seem like the money would be there. But if you read the, you know, if you have any foresight, you know that it's going to. Do you think the big mistake was that people, media organizations gave their content away for free? Was that? No, they just they just had to their economics were out of out of line with where the business was going. Yes, they would be digital dimes, but someday they would be a lot of digital dimes. Right. And. But until then, you had costs. You all made so much money. Like, your, your contracts were crazy. And I, I think you Those were valuable. Those days are over, by the Those way. Those days are over, by the way. You might have been valuable, but were the other 12 people valuable? You know what I mean? Like, should they have gotten millions of dollars? Probably not. Like, one of the things I tried to do early on, because one, I was irritating, and two, I was irritated. And so I always matched myself with my revenues, I was very aware of what my revenues were and my profits, not just my revenues, my profits. Because then if they're like, we want to, we want you to do this. I'm like, no, I'm making money over here. Leave me alone. Like if I'm making money, you cannot bother me essentially. And so if you were aware of your actual contribution, and I know a lot of journalists are like, you shouldn't put a, a number on it. Well, guess what? Someone's putting a number on it somewhere. So it might as well be you. Once I knew what my value was, and I sound, I know I sound like Mika Brzezinski there, but you know, if you don't know your value, you don't know what you can do or what you can't do. That's good professional advice, I think, for anyone to kind of have a really keen understanding of not only what they're making, but what they're making the other people as well, right? right? Regular people have to do it every day. Hourly workers, if they're not keeping up, they don't get the money. Like, that's the problem is that a lot of it was supported by other things that no one ever saw or thought of. And the minute digital, which it's hitting, obviously, the the blue-collar workers, a lot of the manufacturing innovation happened or farming, it started to hit white-collar workers. That's now everybody's screaming. Like, oh, can you believe this? I'm like, yeah, I can, because it makes sense for it to move up the food chain in that regard. Let's talk about you going to San Francisco. One media reporter who you refused to name in the book made fun of you, mocked you, said, what are you going to be covering CB radios? By the way, who is that person, Kara? I'm not telling you. Come on. Why not? Because it's not someone well-known. 
If it was someone well-known, if it was Katie Kirk, I would say so. <laughs> Thank you. He works for an online um, well, everybody news works site. For an online I know, thing, I know, yeah. I know. Yeah. All right. Well, it's you, not I someone might... well-known enough. But if it was like Jeff Zucker, I'd say it was Jeff Zucker. I might have to get you drunk so you can tell me. All I'm right. Not telling so, you. so you Nobody go to important. you go to San Francisco, and the way he was very typical. He was very typical of the attitude at the time. Yeah, so. that tech didn't deserve its own. That wasn't a a, a legitimate beat for a journalist, right. right? Right. When you got to the West Coast. The way you describe these startup big tech companies, you talk about being like kindergartners and playgrounds mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. free stuff and ping pong tables, which made me laugh because that was sort of when I went to Yahoo, I was like, this is such a weird vibe and it such is. a weird mm-hmm. environment. Can you talk about that? The vibe of these early startups? Yeah. I'm curious. Did they make you do fun things? Force fun? Did they force fun upon you? Marissa well, they loved have, that stuff. They had the yodeling thing, which I just oh. wouldn't do. And as you said, that irritating exclamation point. <laughs> what is with the ex? Stop with it. Did they make you yodel? They tried to get you to yodel. I, I didn't yodel. I just honestly, coming there was just such a culture shock for me, Kara. I just it could is. not really like, I didn't bleed purple as a lot of folks at Yahoo right. did. And good, good on them if that's what they wanted. But why was it so juvenile in so many of these startups? You talk about Mark Andreessen and all these mm-hmm. other places. Tell me about yeah. that. Well, it was interesting because I think one of them started doing it, which was Google, was the one that really pioneered like the 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 multi the primary colors. If you notice, like it's very juvenile. A lot of their parties had slip and slides and bouncy houses and things like that. And I was like, and and it sort of I gave the example in the book is when I went to Excite, which is now gone, but it was one of the search. Oh, when companies. they had the red slide, the red slide. Did you go down the red slide? You might. No, have. hell no, I didn't go down okay, the red right, slide. Okay. I just remember so it from the book. Yeah, yeah. So there was a red slide, and they, it was between the second and first of all, they had a fake garage door so they could performatively be a garage. And I was like, this isn't. This is a office. Why are we having a garage? Because it shows us origins. I'm like, but it's not the actual garage door, right? Like I I was, that was me. I was like, I don't, okay, sure. Um, And they had the slide that they wanted between the floors and they're like, you know, everyone gets on the slide. I'm like, I hated slides at five years old. I'm not, I'm like, by this time I'm in my late thirties. I was like, I'm not getting on your friggin' slide. Like, forget it. And they were, it was, you know, it's kind of forced fun. There was a lot of forced fun, like forced joviality. Why is that, you think? I think a lot of them didn't have social lives, didn't have real social lives. A lot of them, you know, a lot of the nerds really were like nerding it out during high school. And I was like, that wasn't fun in sixth grade. But I also think they were trying to show they were so anti-corporate or anti-establishment, right? Yes. Yeah, that was part. It was the clothing, you know, the clothing, the soft clothing, the soft, everything soft. All the chairs were soft. All the beanbag chairs. Soft. In fact, I, I I laughed when I felt like you were channeling your own uh, version of Jennifer Melfi in The Sopranos. You write, "quote Tech is littered with men whose parents, typically fathers, were either cruel or absent. By the time they grew to be adults, many were unhappy and often had some disgruntled tale of being misunderstood before they were proved triumphantly right. Most of all, the damaged ones shared one sad attribute: they all seemed achingly lonely." More, please. I agree. Yeah. Well, I'll never forget. I was at a two things when I was at a one of those Vanity Fair Oscar parties here, and there was a year they let all the techies in. Marissa was there, Sergey was there, 
a whole bunch of them. And I was there to see the celebrities. Like I got invited. I'm like, yay, get to look at celebrities. Fantastic. I'm going over to look at Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm headed over that way. And they were all like, Kara, hey, come talk to us. I'm like, no, get the fuck away from me. I'm like, I don't want to talk to you. I know you. Like I'm talking to the celebrity people. Oh, look, it's Robert De Niro. I'm going over to Robert De Niro. And Sergey was wearing um, a set of Google Glass. Remember, the, they they had the first. Oh you know, yeah, Sergey Brin, who the Brin founder of yeah, found, one of the founders. The right, two, there's two co-founders. Uh, Larry Page is the other one, and he was wearing it at the party. And he's like, mm, "No one's talking to me." Uh, to me, and I go, "Well, take that off your face. They don't like pictures that they don't know are being taken. It's not cool here among these people." Like. It's cool elsewhere, but it's not cool here. And he's like, whoa, what should I talk to him about? And I said, tell them you're a billionaire. They do like money. They do. These people seem to like, and maybe you'll pay for a movie. I don't know. That'll work. I'm sure one of these people will talk to you for They're that. They're just very socially awkward. Right. Awkward. And so that was part of it. And then there was always, like, it was, they seemed, you know, the not all of them had bad parents, by the way. Not all of them. But it's interesting, Steve. You know, Steve Jobs was adopted, uh, was fostered, and then his parents went on to have another kid and didn't come back and get him. Larry Ellison, same thing. Um, you know, Elon's obviously that's the famous story of the bad dad. And, you know, they all had kind of social awkward issues kind of thing. And so you'd feel like they, they didn't know quite how to talk to people, some of them. And that was for lots of reasons. Some of them are on the spectrum. Obviously, it's a famous thing in tech. Um, but they also seem to, I don't know, it just felt like, I felt like I was in a constant Janice Ian song, like they got picked last at basketball or something, you know, and I, I, and it was, it was interesting to watch. No, not all of them. Some of them, you know, Brian Chesky from Airbnb is quite witty and funny. And I think had, I mean, from what I understand, a wonderful upbringing close to his family. He did. Family, his family's you know. wonderful. Let yeah. me just say, best parents of the internet are Brian Chesky's parents. And one of the things that they also had is if they had an interest outside of tech, some of them were just totally tech focused. So say Steve Jobs, he loved design, he loved fonts, he was very well read, he had cultural references while others didn't. And so that was nice. But then others didn't. That check, that's all they could talk about 24-7 was tech, right? And they didn't have other interests or their interests were just awkward. I don't, you know what I mean? I'm not going to make you tell the story of the baby shower, but folks, the book is worth it just to read about the baby shower and what yeah. the host expected their guests to wear. And thankfully, yeah. that was almost the first chapter of the book, but I decided to go more serious. That was so funny. That painted yeah. such a picture for me. And I love the fact that you and Gavin Newsom yeah. refused to, to go yeah. along with the costume idea. Oh, but, he had a nice suit on. Yeah, yeah. Do you like Gavin Newsom? I do very much so. I think he's, I thought he was terrific this weekend on Meet the Press. Do you think he'd be a good president? I do. I do. I think he would. He's very, you know, he's a, he's got a lot, you know, like he's a man who's been through difficult times and understands them. I think he's, I think he suffers from, he's so handsome and smooth that people don't trust him. I think that's, I do. I think, look, here's why I like, the main reason I like Gavin Newsom, among many, because he's really intelligent and smart and sharp, is because when he passed the gay marriage thing, when he was uh, in San Francisco, I have to tell you, he did not have to do that, right? And it really hurt. He was on the way up on the political thing. He was sort of riding high. And he was... Uh, he was laid low by doing that. And is and I don't 
think there's been another politician who took a risk like that on something that wasn't. And that I really appreciated that from I nearly named one of my kids Gavin because I was like, nobody did that. Like no straight guy who was on his way to the top floor of the political spectrum did that. And it, it, he suffered for many, many years for doing so. We have to take a quick break, but after we do, why so few tech moguls saw the harmful effects of what they were creating. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. We're back with Kara Swisher. You know, you write about a lot of these fascinating figures who have become, in a way, the rock stars of modern life in terms of the business world. Corporate rock stars. Yeah. And you knew early on the unintended consequences of this huge transition into the digital age. But I'm curious, do you think that some of these other folks, like Mark Zuckerberg, they just didn't think about it. I mean, I know that their motto is move fast and break things or was, and you write a lot mm -hmm. about it, that. Was it arrogance or willful ignorance that they never contemplated that? Or was it just like, we're just going to make more, more, more money? Well, I think it was the reason the first line of the book is it was capitalism after all is because that's the first line of the book. I want right. to point out this was about nothing but money. Like, let's be clear. And I think they would have liked, they had a very, again, performative nature of the many performative nature things was we're in it for everybody. We're here to save humanity. And initially it's very attractive. And then it's like, wait, that is so narcissistic. You know, I think it sort of reached its height when I was interviewing Elon Musk and he said, right, this was 2018, maybe. And I was at headquarters of Tesla and he had just gone through a very difficult period for Tesla. It almost closed down and he'd gotten a government loan and he had, they had pushed their way through, as many EV makers are doing now. There's a valley of death there. And he had, you know, he had some emotional times. That he, there was a very famous interview he did with the New York Times where he seemed like he was crying. He denies he was crying, but seemed like he was crying. I could see it. And he said to me in this interview, something along the lines of, if Tesla, I thought 
I said, why are you so emotional about this? And then you did the whole I'm sleeping on the factory floor, which is like such a drama queen. Like, come on. there's You can be in a bed. It doesn't take that long to get to a bed. Like he has to, if he's not there, the entire thing falls apart. Oh my God. And and I remember thinking that at the time and I just let him talk and he goes, "If I thought if Tesla didn't make it, humanity was doomed. That's literally what he said. Like essentially, I forget the whole quote, but it was like that. And I was like, what? Like, really? I don't know. Seems like if you go, it doesn't really matter. Like you're not the linchpin. And it wasn't until just recently when I was interviewing Ben Mesrick, who did Social Network, he just wrote a book about Twitter, where I kept thinking, is he just a giant narcissist? And now a malevolent narcissist. And Ben said he thinks everything is a video game. And he has talked to me about simulation, you know. Elon has this whole theory, like a lot of them, about we're in a simulation and none of us is real. And he is the main player. He's the, it's called Ready Player One or whatever. And I don't play video games, but it makes perfect sense. Oh, so the rest of us are fungible. That's why he can say nasty things to everybody because he's the main player. And so he can shoot anyone he wants. He can like his version of this. Right. And I don't play them, but I know enough about them, but that everybody is, you know, when my kids, there was that one game that was, I can't remember one of them, one of the shoot 'em up games. I wouldn't let my kids Call play. Call of Duty it. or something? One of them. One, no, it was the city one, the one in the city. Anyway, I don't know. I don't play them. And there was a point where they were shooting women. It was, um, you know, they were shooting women or they could shoot women or something like that, which I was like, I don't like them shooting anybody, but I guess it's a shooting game. And they were like, well, you know, mom, you can't shoot people without guns. And I was like, but you can shoot them. It was just like this ridiculous argument about it. And it, what it created in a lot of particularly men was this idea that they're the hero of the story, right? Except the story is pretty ugly, right? What if the st- what if you're not the hero? You're the villain of the story. Is that why they cloaked everything in this notion that they're saving humanity? Saving humanity. I was like, we don't need you to save us. Thank you. Like that. I don't know why they needed to say that. You know, instead of can you imagine like I don't know like you know an insurance company, we're here to save humanity by giving you. A policy like you'd be like they'd be laughed out of the room, right? Or a Wall Street person. I'm here to save humanity by giving you a checking account. And if you don't get a checking account, all of commerce will stop. Like that's kind of technically true, but like you're making a car, right? Right? You're making a dating service. You're making a, you know, for you're just you're just making something. And and for some for some reason they have to make it more vaunted than that. And that has to do with their own personal traumas, I think, in a lot of ways. Who do you think is going to be upset with this book? I mean, you write about Jeff Bezos. You write about, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg. Mm -hmm. You say from the moment we met, Mark seemed to think of me and maybe all the press as an adversary. He did. The first thing he said to you was, I heard you think I'm an asshole. He did say that to me. Yes. I mean, he was insecure and yeah, I could see it. He was, he, he had a kind of a, a jerky reputation. I happen to like Mark in that compared to many of the people I covered. He's actually tries. It's just that he shouldn't have this much responsibility and he's made a n- series of mistakes that at some point he really needs to stop, right? Like he's gotten so many at bats and he keeps. What, what, what you do know. you think is the biggest mistake he's made? He doesn't have a sense that he perhaps has designed it in a way that's damaging. Like, I, I, I get the pluses of it. I get I'm not uh, uh, I'm not averse to saying a lot of it is really cool. Uh, what I am averse to saying is, you know, there's been a rise in the self-esteem issues around teenage girls at the same time as the rise of social media. Do you think it's oh, you can't prove it? I'm like, 
you know what? Everyone suddenly got fat after Twinkies. I can't prove it, but I believe it's because of Twinkies. Like, you know what I mean? Or processed foods, or there's been a sudden rise in cancer here because of, and you're like, I can make, you can make some very, what the internet has done to us, the way they've designed it as a, as a casino has made us addicted and it's made us made it necessary. So we can't live without it. And the COVID pushed this through really quickly, like that we needed it. So you can't live without it because you really can't because of work or whatever, communications, everything else. You also can't get a, can't stop looking at it. It's really and Tristan Harris, who I think you interviewed, um, has done a lot of things on this. He was an he was a Google product manager. I know Tristan. Yeah. Yeah. He did. You know, he was a product manager. He knew what he was making. He was making a casino. And he, he quit. <laughs> yes. Push that button. Push. You want to push that button. And you, you, anyone with even five seconds on, on TikTok gets it. You can't get out. It's really hard to look away. Not only addicted, Kara, but also obviously more, more and more tribal and the country mm-hmm. so polarized. And, mm-hmm. you know, getting back to your original calling as a journalist and something that I've done for many years is Mm -hmm. it is (laughs) it is very difficult to convince people of the facts or to even yeah even have them open their eyes to other issues well that's propaganda yeah well I did an interview with Mike McFall you know the former ambassador Mm -hmm. to Russia all about Navalny Mm -hmm. and about Mm -hmm. aid to Ukraine Mm-hmm. The comments were so, you know, why aren't you talking about the border? Why aren't you talking about the border? And you know that that's what people are reading about, hearing on Fox News 24-7. I know your mom's mm-hmm. a big Fox News aficionado. Mm-hmm. But this this constant flow of information is basically altering their brain chemistry, right? I, I would agree. I, I, I And you call it engagement through enragement. I use that all the time. Thank you. Good. It's a really good one. One of the things that drives me crazy, I mean, I'll use my mom as an example. I think I've told you this, is I did an interview with Hillary Clinton. I've done a, several of them. You have done many. Um, and my mom called me the next day and she goes, oh, and this was Fox News. It was, she's not an online person. It doesn't matter. It's the same. It's a repetitive nature of, of, of addiction, addictive things, media. And she said, oh, I can't believe what Hillary said about people like me. And I was like, what did she say? The deplorables thing? No, I thought it was something else. I had just done an interview. It had dropped. I thought she had tweeted something. I don't know. She sometimes, she's very clever on the Twitter. And so I said, oh, what did she say? And my mom started repeating it back to me. And I was like, that sounds familiar, but not right. It's like a ver- it's a twisted version of my interview. And I realized they had taken my interview and restated it in an in- inaccurate way, but they used pieces of it to create a building that wasn't what I built, right? And I said, Mom, that was my interview. She didn't say that. She goes, oh, she did. <laughs> and I was like, no, she didn't. I did the interview. I'm your daughter, and I'm telling you. She didn't. And she's like, oh, you're wrong. She did. And I'm like, all right, this is what we're going to do. You're going to go listen to it. And then you're going to call me back. And she went to listen to it. She called me back. She goes, okay. She didn't say it, but you know, her emails. And I literally was like, all (laughs) right then. And you know, Jimmy Kimmel did it the other day where they said something Trump said and said it was Biden. And then the people were like, yes, yes, that is a terrible bleach. Are you kidding? What an idiot. And then he goes, oh, I'm sorry. That was Trump said that. And they're like, well, the man has the point. Like second, a second later. And he did this with like 10 different things. And you're sitting there like, 
what's and I don't think these people had any they weren't trying to be tricky. They just they their brain chemistry was they couldn't do it. And, you know, it was really I just was I'm always astonished by it, how well it works. And it works because it's an online medium is an addictive it's like, you know, Mark Benioff called it cigarettes. I think I, I, when he did it at the time, people were losing their minds when he told me that. But I'm like, yeah, you're pretty, pretty much right. So what, 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 More like crap, so what, actually. yeah, what is, what is the solution? A, for polarization and media diets that really convince people of things that aren't true or make them hold fast to these certain positions like your mom did. Mm-hmm. And what do we do about the future of media? Let's start with the first question. I mean, okay. what can be done? I was on the Aspen Commission for Disinformation. Mm-hmm. We you made were, all these recommendations. We asked for more transparency, you know, for Facebook and... Algorithmic transparency. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, you know, not even algorithm transparency, Kara, just like the inner working. So researchers could really study mm-hmm. the the phenomenon mm-hmm. that we're talking about or or how these places work and how they distribute and amplify certain information. But it seems like nothing has been done. Why should they? Why? Because, you know, at this point, these companies are money-making, shareholder-focused companies. Let's just be honest about it. That's what they're doing. And they control everything, by the way. They're the richest. They've net, Look, NVIDIA is now a $2 trillion. It's a mixed chips. It's like $2 trillion. Apple's trillions of dollars. Microsoft's trillions. They own AI because it's so expensive, all the, where we're going next. So they have unlimited funds and no consequences for anything they do. And we have we have left... we have, That... That now, to me, they're like, aren't you mad at the tech companies? I'm like, you know what? They're doing what they do. Like, this is how they, they're sharks. Sharks are, sharks going to shark, you know, kind of thing. At this point, we need to do something about the sharks or put them in a pen or figure out a way to have shark repellent or something. But it's up to our elected officials now to do something when they haven't. They just haven't. Well, Nothing. will they ever? And if not, why? Money. The the deleterious effects of money on politics. Who has the most money? Tech companies, right? That's one. Two is they the partisanship that was created by these these tech companies. I think in part, not completely, has now been so they can't agree on anything. They instead they want to go dunk on Twitter. You think you're going to get any cooperation out of Marjorie Taylor Greene? I'm sorry. Good luck. Talk about someone who's been totally addled by the internet and the attention. You know, talk about a malignant narcissist who is who is hopped up on the social media. There you go. There she is. They're welcome to our next public official. Meanwhile, you have people like Mike Gallagher, who I listen, I don't agree with Mike Gallagher on a lot of stuff. I think it's anti his gay stuff is really problematic and troubling. And but at the same time, what a smart legislator about all kinds of issues. He's leaving. I know. He's terrific. I did a great interview with her. He's so smart. I don't agree with him, but I can have a good discussion with him about things to be done. He brought, he's throwing his hands up like, mm, not going to do this. And he's an important figure. Ken Buck, another person who's pushed, talk about conservative. I got to tell you, fighting the good fight. Like, this is a lie. This was a lie. This is like, he's, he learned, he learned about the internet with Dave Cicilline. You couldn't put together two more, you know, David, this gay, Demo- blue, 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 Democrat and Ken Bach, this red, red, red um, Coloradans, but they both cared about the truth, right? Well, he's leaving. David Cicilline left, you know, and so what we're left with is a lot of people, you know, it's just, I, I often, uh, the Yates um, poem of slouching towards Bethlehem, waiting to be born, that's what we have. 
I think the moment in the book that I like the best is when the when Google tried to take over Yahoo search, as you recall. I was writing a lot of no. And during the it was during the Obama administration, which bear hugged these people, by the way. I'm not it's, this is not a Republican Democrat thing, and they all bear hugged them, especially definitely the Obama people, right? And they were trying to basically control Yahoo. They couldn't buy it, but they could have done their business. It was just ridiculous. They were going to have 99.9% of the search market. It was crazy. I've never agreed with Microsoft on anything. And I was like, they are correct, sir. They cannot have this much. At that time, it was the biggest income generator of the, of the internet, what they were doing in search. And I wrote a piece and I used a Dr. Seuss thing and I as a joke. And then I said... A, a line where I said, at least Microsoft knew they were thugs. And this was referring to their previous attempts to control the software platform through Windows, which I had written about at the Washington Post. And one of the founders called me up, and I literally can't write, probably was Larry, because he was the one who talked the most about serious issues like this. And he said, you know us, you know, we're not bad people, right? They, you know, we're not bad people. We would handle it well. I'm like, you know what? The, here's the problem, because you didn't go to school enough. You didn't take history classes. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about the next person. And I quoted Yates where I said, Someone, some rough beast is slouching towards Bethlehem waiting to be born. This is Bethlehem. There's a beast coming and it will be here. And they were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, forget it. Like, forget it. Forget. I'm always quoting like poetry. A terrible like, beauty is born. Terrible beauty. Yeah, right. And so I said this and I said, and, and they had the don't be evil thing, remember, in there as their motto and when they went public. And I said, I don't think you're evil, but there is evil coming. Like, and, you know, welcome, uh, welcome Donald Trump, who used this medium for his advantage, there was always, it didn't matter if it was Donald Trump, someone, the Chinese, the Iranians, uh, white nationalists, they were coming for this because it was perfect. It was a perfect way to finally crawl out from under rocks and take over people's minds. It, finally, they had a vehicle. It sounds like you think the genie is out of the bottle and there's no... No? No, because look, look, remember Standard Oil ran everything, corrupted everything? decided everything from one person, AT&T, Standard Oil, the train monopoly. We've always been subject to power consolidating and trying to manipulate everybody's lives. And there's huge damage that was done by each of those monopolies, each of them in their own way, whether they, they mutated cities or people worked in terrible conditions. We don't have to put up with this. We don't. And we just need elected officials. Yeah, to pass. who's going to fix it if all these people are leaving and other people are thriving as on the way things are? Someone. <laughs> I don't know. That's the problem. Like they have all these bills that they could pass. Look, right now, one of the biggest issues right now around free speech is right in front of the Supreme Court today. This on this so on these laws that these ridiculous attorney generals from Florida and Texas are trying. I can't believe I'm on the tech people's side, but they want to control. They want the government to control political speech. And I, you know, as as I read the First Amendment, Google can control political speech. The state of Florida cannot, even to tell them they can't. And they throw around words like censorship and they abuse the First Amendment in ways that are. Both sides do that, by the way. But it seems to me that we need to put in place a range of things, privacy laws, redo the antitrust bills, um, encourage government research, in, uh, government investment in all kinds of innovation, allow new new companies to come. That's our strength. 
Our strength isn't seven large companies. They're called the Magnificent Seven now. It's that's not our strength. That's not they're not our strength. Our strength is as a small little group of people coming up with a great idea in a garage. And I'm not romantic about this stuff, but it is. That's that's what makes America different. That's why we led the internet age, not because we have the biggest national heroes, you know. So I'm hoping at some point, you know, I, I thought this this stuff around girls and kids and pornography would work. I thought the self-esteem would work. I would thought Francis Haugen would work. At some point, regular people are going to be. This isn't. This is enough. We're all hopped up on this crap, and we, and and there's all sorts of good things that could come of it, like start to lean into cancer research and healthcare and climate change tech and things like that. Why do we have to? Why do we have to have all the bad things that it brings? I was talking to my friend Kevin Goldman, who was a media writer for The Wall Street Journal. I don't know if you know Kevin, but he's like, ask Kara about the future of of newspapers. I was going to say, I'm going to ask Kara about the future of media. We see the fragmentation of the media landscape. We see, you know, traditional journalism imploding. We see lots of actual fake news, not just what Donald Trump calls it, crawling all over the Internet. When you look out on the horizon, Kara, since you're so good at looking at the big picture and identifying trends, what is the future of media in your view? It's just going to be different. I think it, you know, I, I, I sound much tougher on media, but it's the news business. It needs to be a business. You can't not be a business. And so look what you've done. You've built a little media company, haven't you? You're doing good. You're employing people. Yeah. You're having influence. You, you Your costs are in line with your output like we are re- your revenues and costs are in line or else you'd be out of business right, right. you're not going no one's going to like fund Katie Couric to negative numbers they just, it's not going to happen for a while so they just have to be different the way they did things before every business changes there used to be a very thriving stagecoach business there used to be telegrams well guess what they don't exist I have a, a I don't think I put this in the book but my kids, we were walking on the street in L.A., which is unusual in and of itself, and there was a payphone there. It was an old payphone. And it was all, you know, hanging. The thing was hanging down, didn't work. And one of my kids, he was at the time, he was six or seven. He's like, what's that? And I said, oh, it's a, pay, it's a payphone. And I, I hadn't thought of I hadn't used one in a long time either. I saw right? one on a show recently, and I was yeah. like, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right, right. And I said, well, he goes, what did you do? And I said, well, you stood there and you put money in or credit card sometimes that was later and then you called people and that's where if you were out that's where you had to call people but otherwise people couldn't reach you if you were out of your house and he looked at me and he goes that's filthy and I said yes like that was his first reaction and I was like and then I started thinking and I was talking to them I go what happened to all the people that used to service these what about the people that made these what about like there was a whole infrastructure and business. It's the same thing with news. You're just going to have to change and make products that where the costs are in line with the revenues. Unfortunately, a lot of the big media companies, because Facebook and Google have eaten up all digital revenues, and you didn't get tech enough, soon enough, fast enough. You need to, I'm sorry, you have to change the cost structure and or make something that people will pay for so you can have the cost structure you have. That is really hard for reporters to do. You have to embrace some AI stuff that makes it more efficient. You just do. Some of it is going to help make things more efficient. But I'm very heartened by me, people like me and like you and like Platformer with Casey Newton, all kinds of things. Casey has enormous influence. He has two people and he's doing great, right? Well, that's small, but it's not nothing. 
that's I see that. Or else you're going to have a couple of big places like that'll consolidate, like uh, like the New York Times, you know, which sort of has become its own news monopoly. At the same time, it's not that big. It's not that yeah. big. It's just a smaller business, Katie. That's all it is. I always think that, and this gets back to the polarization issue, that mass media is an oxymoron, this notion of monoculture, of shared experience. Um, that actually contributes to to polarization, though, because everyone is creating their own media ecosystem. They are. But at the same time, Katie, let's just like be honest. Like You worked for the networks for years. You came up networks. I was arguing about that people were going to make years ago. I was saying there's going to be all kinds of media from all kinds of people because everyone suddenly has tools and there's all this creativity out there that you that has to go through your gateways. No, and I love that. That's a positive, definitely. And they're like, well, it's going to be very different because the gatekeepers. Are I said, you know what? The gatekeepers used to be twelve white men on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Do we really want to take our cues from them? We don't. That's that wasn't the right thing either. It just happened to work for the time it was in. So No, I agree the people who were the gatekeepers were not ideal, but I still believe in the need for gatekeeping. That is true. You know, for editing, for ascertaining what's actually accurate and truthful. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's the wild, wild west now. Anybody can say something and unfortunately too many people are willing to believe it. Right. Except that I think I am of the opposite belief. I think especially young people and you have you have young adults, you know, your children are young adults. My older sons are young adults. I think they're very savvy. I think they know a lot about stuff. I think they do can ascertain the differences. I don't think they're tricked easily. And I have a lot of faith in young people in that regard. And one of the things, do you remember when we were growing up when they said the TV was the boob tube? Oh, yeah, of course. Right? My mom used you're to gonna, call it that. Your, your mind is going to turn to the mush. Tube. You're going to turn to mush. Did you turn to mush, Katie? No. And also, TV is pretty good now, right? Look at music. Music was under siege by digital, and they figured it out. Now it's a pretty thriving industry. Well, we'll figure it out. That's what we're going to do. And to every reporter, I say, I'm so sorry, but this is this happened to the farming people. This happened to the manufacturing people. And it it doesn't hurt any less. This happened to the people who operated and made the teletype machines. That's right. So guess what? It's time to change. And unfortunately, because we live, you know, or we just have the government pay for everything. That's the other way to go, right? Have the government pay for media. I'm not. That's not happening in this country anytime soon at, at a massive level because of the polarization. And it just probably shouldn't, right? Um, so I don't know. You just make a business and start to grow it is the is the only way to stay ahead. That is the only way to do it and continue to like I believe and I think you do. I believe in substantive media and I think there's a market for it. I really, really do. And I'm not going to hit everybody, but I'm going to make a business out of it. And 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 then, you know, that's how business that's how that's what's great about this country. It's about innovate. There's no place on Earth like the United States around innovation. There isn't. There just isn't. I've been all over the globe. I've seen all the places. And there's a, there's an innovative spirit in this country that exists. So let's find it everywhere it is and encourage it so that we don't have to have top down, you know, our world isn't shaped by Mark Zuckerberg. I don't he's a look great, really nice. But honestly, it shouldn't take him two years to figure out anti-Semitism is a problem unchecked. Right. That's right. What, how long it took him. So let's get lots of voices happening. Let's get a lot of people. And I do think, I I don't know, I have a confidence that journalists will be just fine. I hope so, because they're so important. They are. And your voice is so important, too, Kara, to to make sure that 
people really know what's going on. The book is called Burn Book, A Tech Love Story, Kara. Thank you. This was so fun. I could talk to you for hours. but Well, um, you might. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have a question for me, a subject you want us to cover, or you want to share your thoughts about how you navigate this crazy world, reach out. You can leave a short message at 609-512-5505, or you can send me a DM on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. Next Question is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. Our supervising producer is Ryan Martz, and our producers are Adriana Fazio and Meredith Barnes. Julian Weller composed our theme music. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to the description in the podcast app or visit us at katiecouric.com. You can also find me on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.